So sometimes one of the things that you have to do if you promote the future leader is get them to see themselves differently and not be afraid. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by Inveris. I'm absolutely delighted today to be sitting here this afternoon with Susan Combs, chairperson of the advisory board for the Carbon Neutral Coalition, former assistant secretary for policy management and budget, and chief financial officer for the United States Department of the Interior, author of Texas Tenacity, a call for women to direct their destiny, founder of Herdacity, an online empowerment community for women and fellow at the University of Texas for Identity. That was a mouthful, Susan. That was a mouthful, but you delivered it without a hitch, Paige. (laughs) Thank you. Let's just get started from the beginning, Susan. Okay, well, let me give you a little bit of uh, sort of capsulated bio. Born into a ranching family, great-grandfather first moved out to the Big Bend in 1882, 140 years ago. And he and his son, my grandfather and his son, my father, all were ranchers. And that was, we certainly understood drought and a lot of adverse conditions. And then went to college. I went and worked in Manhattan for six years in international advertising, Wall Street, and for the federal government. That's a little bit of a culture shock, huh? It was interesting. The international advertising certainly broadened my horizons. We had 66 offices in 44 countries. And it was interesting to really realize you had to learn about other people because you can't sell a product to people if you don't understand them. And then went to law school, became an assistant district attorney in Dallas, handling child abuse cases and prosecuting juvenile delinquents. And that was really where I began to really get serious about putting facts together, putting your case together. I had to have an airtight case if I was handling a child abuse case. Oh, I bet. Then my dad was getting a little bit older and I asked him, my husband and I were in Dallas, asked him if I could come home and you know, work with him and start running the ranch with him. He was beyond excited. And so for seven years, I was lucky to work in a one-room office in downtown San Antonio, then driving back and forth from San Antonio. It's about 340 miles out to the Big Bend, out to the town of Marathon. And then he died, and I kept running the ranch. I still got the ranch, just came back in from there actually day before yesterday. And that sort of ranching and the tenacity of the people who went out there and the gumption and the grit that you have to have when you cannot control the weather and you cannot control the prices and you are at the mercy of both and you have to be flexible. And then somebody one time said, well, why don't you, you know, run for office? It'll be a piece of cake. That's literally what this (laughs) And I went through a primary, a runoff, a recount, a lawsuit in the Republican primary, and I oh, won wow. two votes. Wow. Two votes. <laughs> That's crazy. And I handed out blue combs, because my name is Combs, 
and people still have them, which is kind of fun. So after all these years, and then did that for you know two sessions, and then somebody suggested I run for the ag commissioner. And that was a wonderful eight years that I got to spend as ag commissioner. I mean, I very much enjoyed meeting the men and women out of the rural areas who worked the land. It felt very at home. And then after eight years, I had done a lot there that I was ready to move on to the next thing. And, so, and also became the first female yes. ag commissioner. And that was not a problem. What you know, some people, the press always wondered, well, how can you persuade the men? I said, what the men want and the women, does this individual running for, do they understand agriculture? Are they embedded in agriculture? Do you think they will listen? And I was able to make that case and had two four-year terms, which was great. And of course, I learned a lot about water, learned a lot about energy, learned a lot about land use, livestock, and got involved in the fight children's obesity. So I did some things with school lunch, developed the Go Texan marketing program, which I think has been quite successful. I'm very proud of being a Texan and very proud to market Texas-based products. And so that was a lot of fun. We, we developed that in 1999. And I got Tommy Lee Jones and Nolan Ryan to each do a TV commercial for me. Oh, that's awesome. That was pretty neat. And then the comptroller's office, that is a whole different world. That's the chief financial officer for the state of Texas, the treasurer, the tax collector, and a lot of authority over procurement, buying stuff smart. And then I started the first year I was there to do an energy report. And it's probably still archived at Comptroller's office called the Energy Report. It's from 2008. I wanted to know about all energy. I wanted to know about the subsidies because you can create some market distortions depending on who you, you know, which energy source you like and which one you don't like and how you treat them. And so that was interesting. Did a lot of back office streamlining, put a lot of things online, really cut down by about two thirds the response time on tax returns, cut down by about two thirds, just getting information that they needed and then engaged in a bunch of transparency and then retired at the end of 14 and was asked in late 16 or early 17 if I wanted maybe to go to Washington. They were looking at me for possibly Department of Ag, but I wanted Department of the Interior. And so I was able to have that job and that was fascinating. So that's what I've been doing. That's awesome. And so when did you decide to write your memoir? I wrote that in 2015 and it was prompted by an article in the Austin American Statesman. It was like in February or March. Evidently there had been a new city council elected and for the first time it was majority women. And there was this article got me very fired up and it said that, well, the city staff decided to hire a consultant because women had to be handled differently. Two things. They asked a lot of questions and they didn't like numbers. No. So I got so mad that I fired off an op-ed that afternoon. <laughs> and I thought, if this is happening in Austin, this is absolutely crazy. That and is so, so insane. But, but Austin, I just thought it was nutty. And so I decided if Austin's doing this, then it's got to be really awful everywhere. And by the way, I'm really tall, Paige. 
And so I had had an advantage over other women who were maybe shorter. And I, of course, when I was 14, I didn't like it. By the time I was 34, I thought it was pretty dadgum fantastic. (laughs) But it really made me think, what do I want to do with my time? What I want to do with my time is help women. We're half of the population. It was clear to me that women needed skills to be heard. And so that's why I wrote the memoir, because I had had some some things in my way. And I basically just said to myself, I can get to the next step, whatever the next step is, I can do it if I am smart and careful and think about stuff and also have a little boldness. Yeah, definitely. So why did you found Herdacity? Well, I had to leave Herdacity by rule in the administration, but I found Herdacity in late 15, but it wasn't really up and running until 16. It's an online platform, and I believe it is being shut down in the next couple of months. Oh. Well, it served its purpose at first, and because of, if you're in a president-appointed, Senate-confirmed position, you generally have to give up most everything you've been involved in. So I had to let go of herdacity, and I believe it was 2018. That makes sense. Yeah, I get that. That's just what you have to do. But my interest is still strong about supporting women. And I certainly did that at the Department of the Interior. I established the Workforce Culture Transformation Advisory Council. Ooh, that's a mouthful. Yep, WCTAC. And that was to promote and persuade people. You know, men and women, we obviously had you know, about 65, 70,000 employees. And I wanted there to be respect for everybody in the workplace. And I wanted to give people you know, seminars and skill sets, et cetera, and have them be able to learn from people they work with on, you know, how to be more successful and expand the reach of their potential. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. You're considered a modern woman. So that really stands out to me and that all kind of ties back to everything. Well, and of course, I've got a husband and three sons, so I've always had to have girl dogs. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was not going to be outmanned as a worker. <laughs> I don't think that they feel I'm outmanned. Probably not. <laughs> oh, by the way, Paige, I am the shortest in the family. The boys, the men, are 6'3", six, 6'3 three, six, three and a half, 6'6 six, six and a half, and the hubby's been 6'4 and a half. And so I am the baby. I was 6'2 and a half. I've shrunk about an inch by now, but... I was certainly the shrimp of the family. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'd just be looking up to all of y'all. <laughs> I'm only 5'6". <laughs> my opponents. <laughs> I would have loved to have been there for that. That was pretty entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been amazing to see in person. But when I read that in your book, it made me laugh so hard. <laughs> you all look up to me. That was amazing. <laughs> It made me laugh hard, too, much harder than my opponents. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) All right. Well, let's really get into your position as chairperson of the advisory board for the Carbon Neutral Coalition. Yeah, I was thrilled to be, you know, introduced to Corby Robertson. I've met him before when I was running for office, but to meet him in this role, he asked me if I would chair this advisory board and help make it expand it. And... You know, what the Carbon Neutral Coalition wants to do is to, in essence, 
you know, reduce carbon intensity. In Corby's words, it's to turn fossil fuels green. And there's two reasons for that. One is going carbon neutral is undoubtedly going to help the world, but also it's also going to get us access to markets which have not been happy with some emissions, et cetera, when French company, I think it was Total, became something else. When they pulled out of a deal, they stated, my recollection is, that we needed to you know, improve some of our carbon capture, which I totally agree. So we're all interested in carbon capture, utilization, storage, and working on that, and also looking at an offset market, working with a great guy at Baker Institute, Jim Blackburn, He's chair of the offsets committee with the B carbon protocol. That's nature-based solution, which really for me is very comfortable space because it's landowners, it's ranchers, it's farmers, it's, you know, forestry owners. Can we in fact store carbon and thereby create an offset market? And so that's, it's very interesting. And I learn a lot. I mean, Paige, you're in this business. Well, I mean, I'm drinking from a fire hose about half the time because something new comes out every day. I actually want to taste something that knocked my socks off the day before yesterday. Jamie Dimon, who of course, as you know, is the CEO of JP Morgan. In a, have you heard about the telephone call? No, I haven't. Okay. In a telephone call today being Thursday, maybe it was Monday or Tuesday, he said, quote, why can't we get it through our thick skulls that America boosting oil and gas production is not against climate change? Interesting. That was pretty well. Then he went on to say, look, if the price of oil and gas is really high because there's scarcity, then some of these countries around the world will go to coal, which is higher in carbon intensity. Uh huh. And so if you pump up the oil and gas, they will back away from the coal. And of course, what we see in the Ukraine has been so eye opening and Germany waking up to yes. saying, oh, whoops, my bad. We had 55 percent. <laughs> from those guys to the east of us, the Russian bear. And boy, wasn't that a bad mistake, a bad bet. And so I'm hoping that people will say, wait a minute, the Eastern European problem is actually going to be our problem if we don't have policies and programs that say, let's have fossil fuels, start, let's have all kinds of energy, you know, hydrogen economy coming wind and solar, but you have to have reliable, affordable baseload. Right. It's part of being prosperous. And so, you know, I think you were talking about total energies is what they yeah, changed well, to. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But yeah, what's going on overseas is insane. I'm very, I feel horrible for everyone in Europe. Oh, just this winter is going to be brutal. Zelensky says, at least in something I read, that he's hoping that they can wind this down before winter because it is going to be so brutal. And of course, the gathering of their wheat and their grains has been horrible. I remember I was in Russia in 1991, went through Ukraine, and they had to have soldiers in trucks bringing in the grains at the time. This was right before Perestroika and Glasnost and you know the shuttering of the USSR. But their ag systems, such a breadbasket, but they were very bad. So here's Ukraine now as its own country. And you have Russia tunneling under and sort of stealing some of their grain and then you know blockading it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I read yesterday that they actually let some oil go through the pipeline from Russia through Ukraine. I think so. I think we covered it on oil and gas this week. I'll get you that link 
And I'll also put it in the link for anybody else that wants to reach out and read that too. It's quite interesting what's going on. And I guess it kind of pisses me off that Biden's selling our reserves. Oh, well, it's just nutty. And, you know, when fracking and the Eagle Ford opened up here in Texas, that was such a revenue shock in a sense. Mm -hmm. Our revenue estimate didn't expect it. And just huge gusher of money. And now you've got the administration wanting, we had, we were energy independent and we're, right. we're, we are reversing courses from a national security perspective. I do not see how that is a safe position to ever be in. Well, I mean, he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't even know where he is. So except on vacation. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. But anyway, politics aside, let's talk a little bit more about the other industries the carbon neutral coalitions wanting to talk about, you said you were talking about, you know, the farmers and ranchers yes. and everything else. So in fact, Jim Blackburn and I, we're going to be talking with A&M in about 10 days. I think I'm a big supporter of land grant universities and, you know, sort of what I would call sort of dispatched brain power. A&M has the ag extension service and they're all over the state. What we're finding with the nature-based solutions, whether you're storing carbon, you know, in plants, or you're doing regenerative agriculture, which is basically a rotational thing or for trees, not everybody has a blueprint. And what we got able to be done, one of our board members on the advisory board is a regent at A&M, and they are very interested, I believe, and I'll confirm this in a phone call, that they can help be in a sense, a point of sale of information. Working with U of H, maybe, and working with Rice, the Baker Institute, because people want to know, well, what do I have to do? Is my soil okay? Can I do it? What's my risk? And in fact, I think the King Ranch was having a conversation today about it. I was not able to sign in, but I want to get their paper. But there's a lot of land and a lot of people, mostly probably near I-35 and East because of rain patterns, I mean, you got to have rain to make the roots grow, obviously. Right, yeah. And so, but we're such a big ag state. And I think if we can have landowners, or maybe I'm a rancher, but what I have is there was oil extracted from there. Right. Time ago, I've got all that empty pore space and somebody could store carbon there. And so it wouldn't be necessarily in plants, but it'd be underground. And I think there's yeah. an awful lot of opportunity for landowners. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, you know, people get paid to have a, you know, antenna on their property. It's kind of the same kind of thing, except it's helping the environment. And I think people are going to do it. I was at the Texas Wildlife Association convention a few weeks ago, and they had a whole day on this topic related. And those are people who are landowners, by and large, that are interested in wildlife, but they're really interested in, you know, obviously extracting value from land and land is they're not making more. And so let's see what we can do to help these guys enhance the value. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, let's get into leadership. You have a lot of experience in this, and this is what the show is really about. So let's start with what is leadership to you? I think leadership is having an appetite for risk. I think it requires boldness, but it also requires if you're going to be an effective leader, then you have to have good intel that you can verify 
and that enables you to be persuasive. And the fourth thing I think, I guess, is that it can't be about the leader. It's got to be about the problem. It's got to be about what you're trying to solve or enhance or make better or new direction. But if it's me, 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 then you're not being an effective leader. Right. Right. So what do you think the hardest thing about being a leader is? I think sometimes it's the risk. It's taking the risk. And, you know, that 3 a.m. wake up when your stomach is churning, that's, you know, did I do the right thing? Is this right? And if it is right, you know, do I, why don't I feel better about it? <laughs> or in some cases, though, leadership, the tough thing is not to let emotion get in the way, but you still got to be focused and driven. And when I was, there was a thing that I did that I thought was real important in the 2013 legislative session, I thought that it was so important for us at the state to show leadership for the public and put up on the web, which is, you know, the public square, put up on the web, all of the debt information and budgets of every single public entity. And that included cities, counties, school districts, that included MUDs, municipal utility districts, et cetera. I had town halls. I held about 20 town halls and the public loved it. So then I didn't realize a couple things. One, people don't want you to know. The mayor of a major city, when I went to see him, he said, Susan, if people knew here that they owed a billion dollars, they'd be upset. And I said, yeah, but it's their money. Yeah. So it was killed twice in the House. The House version and the Senate version were both killed on points of order. So that... Uh. That hacked me off. So that was in May of 13. And so within a couple of days, I launched a website, www.tellthetruthtexas.org. <laughs> and we put it all online. I turned to the staff and I said, we got to go do this. And so we collected it and posted it. And that's awesome. I guess what I would say, and that's a different kind of transparency in a way, page. That is transparency about spending. We're yes. at the at the CNC, we're focused right now on getting transparency about life cycle analysis for all energy sources. Right. Yeah. And that'll be out in the fall, we think. Awesome. That's the type of stuff I want to see because, like you said, it's our money. Well, but it's also it's our choices. And so let's take a look, though, back. If I were a German and I'm taking a look now because Angela Merkel decided to make all those bad choices, I'm saying, what the heck? I wish I had known. I wish I had seen a comparison that made sense and was validatable because if you're the consumer at home, your pocketbook issues are foremost in your mind. I've got to drive a truck. I've got to drive a bus. I've got to drive my car, take the kids to school. I've got to go shopping. With inflation at you know eight and a half, nine percent England, it's 10%. With inflation high and people... In the administration, not always understanding that people do actually have to have a, earn a living and they don't have a, they're not clipping coupons. And mm -hmm. that the energy source, if you can't have a natural gas stove in California, okay, well, what is the life cycle analysis of a different form of energy? And if I don't know that, then I can't choose as an effective consumer. And that's the thing I think that we all have to do in this energy area is be sure we give out information to let people choose. Yeah, absolutely. And to go back to the California comment, they also are not allowed to have gas-powered mowers. So, Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. It's kind of a dumpster fire over there. It is kind of a dumpster fire. Well, their energy is very, very high, and the regulatory framework is really 
constrictive. And that's why, you know, the U-Haul stats, they're all pouring out of California, out of San Francisco and LA. It's too expensive. And they're coming to Texas and Florida and, you know, places where- Tennessee. And what? I think Tennessee is the other one. Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, you're near Austin. You know, everybody's moving over there. Yeah. The traffic is pretty terrible today. I had to- (laughs) I had to go to the dentist today and I was listening to calming music and thinking calm thoughts and, <laughs> and not tapping my brakes aggressively, trying to glide along Mopac so, and not grinding my teeth. Right. Yeah. That's always my thing. Grinding my teeth and shaking my wrist. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief at OGGN, and the energy industry faces challenges every day. And the events of the last two years have caused disruptions like never before. Companies in the energy industry need actual intelligence and a single source of truth that brings all the data together. Eneverus is the energy specialized technology partner that provides intelligent connections for the global energy ecosystem. Only Eneverus has the analytics, people, experience, and industry scope to connect the right data and information in the right way to discover missed opportunities and deliver fast outcomes. Find out more at eneverus.com. That's E-N-V-E-R-U-S dot com. Okay, so my audience is pretty vast. It's not people only in the oil and gas industry. It's people that want to learn about leadership and also people like yourself that have been in the industry for a while and have, you know, experienced this legacy of things. If you had a piece of advice or a couple of pieces of advice to give our audience, what would this be? Oh, by the way, hear the thunder? I know we have a storm coming. I am so excited. It just hit. It just don't. So here's what I really suggest that you find a mentor or a sponsor. And there's a difference between the two words. A mentor says, hi, Bob or Mary. Yeah, yeah. We'll have a cup of coffee and I'll give you some thoughts. A sponsor is actually really going to get engaged with you to help you do what you want. I think it's always good to ask for advice. I think it's always great to have sort of a personal kitchen cabinet, bounce ideas off. I had a friend of mine, I talked to her yesterday. She's thinking about looking for a particular job and she was a little uncertain. I said, well, you know, remind me of your background. By the time the call was over, I said, look at your background. You've listed A, B, C, D, and E. Why are those not absolutely perfect? So sometimes One of the things that you have to do if you promote the future leader is get them to see themselves differently and not be afraid. Yeah, I see that. That's a huge difference in the two. Yeah, because the mentor just goes, hey, how's it going? Not only here are my thoughts, here are your goals for how, you know, a certain amount of time. I really like the sponsor idea. I've never heard anybody say that before. I like that a lot. I think. The sponsor is much more actively engaged. And so the sponsor picks up the telephone and calls Freddie. So I've got a friend of mine, you know, Barbara Mary. I really think you ought to visit with them. They would certainly benefit by your thoughts. And, you know, you might be, you might find that they fit into your organization. I think that's a transactional kind of behavior that is very useful and it helps propel people forward. People have done that for me. That's cool. You know, why don't you try X? Well, oh, I never thought of X. Great. Thanks for the feedback. Ha ha ha. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So do um, you have any books that have influenced you? Actually, yeah. And this is going to sound strange. A Distant Mirror by Barbara Tuckman. I've read that a couple of times. It was about the Middle Ages and it was about 
how hard it was for people to attach themselves to small children because the death rate was so high. That was like how, what a great place I live in. Everything is good. The other thing is, you know, not Machiavelli, but Sun Tzu. I mean, the sort of the art of war is interesting. It's so pithy and it's clear about being strategic and tactical. Yeah. And I think sometimes we get fogged up. Well, there's so many distractions, Susan. There's so many things going on and we're connected to all of it. Well, all right. So this is the kind of thing that really makes me very sad to see. You'll go to a restaurant or you'll see people. They are at the same table and they are all on their phones. Yeah. Why the heck go out and be in the same place if you're not in the same place mentally? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I have a problem. Like, I'm old school and I like books. I've in the past haven't read a whole bunch, but I'm coming back to it. I can't pick up like a Kindle or something and read a book. I just can't do it. I have to have the physical book. I've now gone almost entirely to Kindle because I can read them better. And also, I can take a whole lot of books in one device. Oh, I don't have true. to a suitcase of books. I've read Shogun by James Clavell probably about six times. It's a thousand pages. Yeah. Yeah. That's and it's all in the palm of your hand. Yep. So that's, I think I, I just need that focus. Like I'm reading this book. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not going to see a notification. I'm just solely focused here. That's a good kind of discipline. And that's not what I have. I mean, I'm not checking my phone because I'm not getting a bunch of text messages, but I am. Oh, well, what's the weather? Because <laughs> I'm yeah. <laughs> anybody connected to a ranch. What's the weather, Myrtle? I want to know what it is right now. I have Marathon and Alpine and Fort Stockton on my phone so I can know what the weather is like at all times out there. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, you need to know those things. And, you know, we're in a pretty bad drought right now here in Texas. Well, I mean, I think across the world, but, you know. Well, I got two inches of rain between Monday afternoon and Tuesday morning at the ranch. And the oh, creek that's great. I think maybe we got an inch here a couple weeks ago. I'm on the southwest side of Houston, and it always misses us. <laughs> it rains everywhere else, but always misses Richmond. Well, Austin is supposed to get something today. And so that's why I also have Austin and Johnson City on my phone because I want to know, is it coming in from the West or where is it coming? Oh, yeah. It's coming in from the Northwest moving mm -hmm. towards us. I think we're going to get the same storm, just different parts of it. So I'm excited because it's so hot. Let me ask you an oil and gas weather related question. What is your take about the natural gas circumstance in winter storm yuri Ooh, i don't really have much of a stance i just read news articles on oil and gas this week and let mark lacour answer a lot of that stuff but natural gas has gotten lower in price but i mean we should be able to supply that to the entire world yeah we should i think that's the goal well, i mean that and that's the wonderful thing about this great state of texas is we annihilate everyone and everything we win we're number one in wind. We're number one in solar. We're number one in oil and gas. So, And you've got the Gulf Coast, and you've got some great things going on with the- Lots of uh, refineries. Yeah, but you've also got some money. I know that Sean Strawbridge, who I believe is the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, they're getting some money to dredge their channel 
deeper. It's going to go from 44 foot depth to 52. So you can get bigger LNG stuff in. Oh, I think I read that. Yeah. And Galveston is getting something and I'm not sure maybe somebody else's, but that whole Gulf Coast curve on the west side of the Gulf, if they enhance the shipping and the capacity, it's going to do great things, but we're going to have to do some carbon capture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know that Germany is having issues with the drought and I think their water's gone down to almost 16 inches. So they're going to have to use different modes of transportation. In France, uh, the Loire is almost dry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just wild. Estonia had had a plan to do an LNG facility and then it was poo-poo, but they kept the plan and they are now about halfway, I think, through building a good LNG facility in Estonia, which is a good, you know, counterweight to Russia. Yes, yes, certainly. Most certainly. So back in your political days, who would you say was your most respected opponent? Can I just hit a buzzer? (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to say anybody at all. Perhaps. Look, I liked them all, but I decided that since I was outstanding when I first ran for the ledge, <laughs> I would, I'd make jokes. These I ran against four guys, and I would say, "Oh, my opponents look up to me. I'm the I had the highest profile in the race, which was literally true. They looked at my nose and <laughs> head and shoulders above my opponents." Well, I of course chuckled. Nobody else did except the audience. And then I ran against a guy for ad commissioner in the primary, and he put in the press that I shouldn't be wearing heels anywhere because it was unfair. And I'm thinking like, hey, fella, you're wearing cowboy boots. And <laughs> I, said, I responded back, you're just lucky I didn't have big hair, didn't tease my hair. <laughs> and then the other guy I ran against for comptroller, so I was at the Dallas Morning News editorial board. And so they could tell he was pretty unhappy with me. And so there was sort of these leading questions, which I would remember as a former prosecutor. Isn't that a fact? You'll think Miss Combs is unfit for this job as comptroller because she's written a romance novel. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so the guy, he, he just fell off the diving board and he went on and on and on about my romance novel, which, of course, like a moron, I wrote it under my own name. Anyway, <laughs> so at the end of the interview, in the ed board, there were three of us in there. I was asked to stay back. And the guy, the editorial board member, he said he opened his jacket. He pulled out a copy of my romance novel and asked if I would endorse it. (gasps) That's so awesome. (laughs) I mean, I thought, oh, why sure, let me pat my hair. (laughs) So anyway, that was pretty funny. So no, I don't have any particular opponents that I thought the world of. Okay, that's fair. (laughs) I will say this, though. It's a wonderful opportunity. If you run for office, it is an incredible opportunity to meet people where they are. You learn stuff. I mean, because everybody's place is different. I think running for office is actually powerfully invigorating. Forgetting the nasty stuff, it's powerfully invigorating. You learn a bunch. And I think you end up being a better, smarter person at the end. I can speak to that. My ex-husband ran three times, twice for House, once for Senate here in the state of Texas. So he lost them all. 
But I did meet Glenn Hager, who succeeded you, succeeded you in as comptroller. So you meet wonderful people. You definitely learn a lot. The nasty stuff can get nasty if you let it bother you. That's where you kind of your character really shows is, you know, you're going to let this whisper campaign, you know, pull you down or you're just going to move forward and then, you know, concede if you lose and just own it, you know, so. But you haven't wasted your time. No, and I absolutely think not. I think that takes a certain appetite for risk or else just very thick skin or a combination of the two. Right. Right. You know, things come out like romance novels. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, Paige, they read from it on the Senate. Oh, no. Cluster. <laughs> Let me, oh, oh, I won't, I will not tell you this story, but there was a funny story on the house. Anyway, somebody brought it up in the back mic. I was trying to pass my private property rights bill, which was very important. And he alluded to the book and I was not going to be backed down. This was the end of the session in, let's see, in, no, 1995. And what I did was memorable. I will not describe it, but he retreated. He said, yes, I think I like your bill. What? No, this guy, he tried to say wow. something. Did I, you know, I mean, I backed him down. It was funny. I will tell you offline. Okay. Fair. <laughs> we'll leave that alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I've been very lucky in my career. I think I've been very lucky. I've worked with some wonderful women. I hired really smart women from my campaign office. And I think they would say by and large that they learned a lot and that it made their next career steps better. That's what all we can do is try to get help other people do what they need to do. Right. Right. And with that, what would you say your most important lesson learned is? Never quit. I mean, literally never quit. I mean, in politics, people will try to throw you off, try to distract you. If you have a focus on something you're trying to accomplish, don't stop. You may change strategy. You may change how you're going to get there. But if you are convinced it is right and you're not being an egomaniac fathead, then, <laughs> well, I mean, I used that phrase like 25 years ago. How soon will it take me to become a fathead? Anyway, my point is, is that it's really important that you stick to your sort of your principles and you stick to the process, but you may change tactics along the way. And that's okay. That's smart. You know, that's strategic. But I think just don't quit because people will throw stuff in front of you, banana peels or distracting, like you mentioned, distractions. You just, if it's really important, just don't quit. Yeah. And follow your gut. That plays a huge part of that too. Yeah, that's my 3 a.m. wake up call. If I wake up at 3 a.m. and I think, oh my goodness, what did I do? That is, I'm listening to my gut and I should have listened to it sooner. I don't want to have, you know, sour grapes and regret that I didn't do something. So I think basically if you have an optimism, which I think I'm an optimistic person. My father always used to say, we're just every day, we're one day closer to rain, which is true. And you get optimistic and you decide you want to help other people. I think, Paige, what you're doing is very external facing. I think that's really neat. I mean, you're delivering information and stuff from other people and it's about you looking outward. And I think that's very powerful. Thank you. Thank you. I really do mean that. I mean, it is powerful. Being outwardly focused is really useful. Well, and that really means a lot coming from you. But I do mean it. I mean, look, 
I was a scaredy cat. I wouldn't even call the movie theaters when I was a kid to ask for movie times. But because, oh my gosh, wow, like, how can I ask for movie time? Because, of course, they didn't have, you know, computers. But when I became an assistant DA to help those kids, it was all about that kid. And I could not mess up. And you can really get rocket fuel that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm afraid to speak in public, but I could do this all day because nobody can see me. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know what? Doesn't that make you feel free? It does. It does. Well, good. Keep doing it. Been doing it for five years now, and now I have two of them. So just going to keep on exciting. going. I think that's exciting. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think my favorite part is being able to have this platform for people to share what they've gone through, how they got to you know the present i think that means something to people but you know what i think is so interesting about women versus men and when i was doing some research for her dad the confidence gap you've heard about that women oh, this is so interesting a woman and a man will have the exact same you know background let's say he will think oh i am so overqualified for this job <laughs> she will say oh i can't do it same thing we women unless we are unusual and have really been, you know, pushed ahead, we will always undersell ourselves and the guy will oversell himself. And so my lesson for people, for women is talk to somebody else who can give you a better perspective on what you have the capacity to do. And then you're not listening to your own echo chamber, which sometimes shuts you off from really achieving all you can. Yeah. Yeah. I think I expect so much from others that I also expect that for myself and I'm very hard on myself. So it's really an internal battle, but I just got to say, suck it up and do what you need to do, girl. Yeah, but you're doing it. The point yeah. is, I mean, <laughs> you've got a track record. That is very important. You have a body of work. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody gets to see it. That's what's amazing. I yeah. think. Isn't yeah. that nice? Right. Yeah. I mean, I kind of came out of my shell a little bit whenever my ex-husband ran because I was his campaign manager. So that was an interesting ride. So definitely learned a lot about that. So do you listen to podcasts? Yes, I do. I like podcasts. I, mean, I specifically like energy podcasts. I mean, I like this one. Stuart Turner's got some. I like Oh, I love Stu. Because these are casual enough and I can sit and listen to the podcast. And I like that it's very available to me. It's very present to me. And maybe I don't want to drive you know, two and a half hours to, or three hours to Houston. Maybe I would just want to listen. Well, I can, the world comes to me through a podcast. That's very exciting. Yeah. Super convenient. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. And you can play it later. Yeah. Yeah. I think the favorite thing about my show is they're evergreen. It's, you know, stories, you know, people's past, and it'll always be there at the fingertips of anyone that's interested. So, yeah. Well, thank you for joining me again, Susan. It has been an absolute honor. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about the Carbon Neutral Coalition or want to buy your, well, at least one of your books, <laughs> yeah, how can they go about doing so? Yeah, the Texas Tenacity one, please buy it from Amazon. But no, go Google the Carbon Neutral Coalition. You'll see all of our information on there and love to hear from you. We welcome input. We hope that we can get the legislature to understand this is important. And that's one of the things we're doing is really talking about advocating for, you know, sort of maybe an incentive. So to sort of kickstart it, you know, doing carbon capture is expensive. I hear numbers of between, you know, 100 and 130 or $40 per metric ton, which is a lot of money. 
and some of the methods are more expensive than others. But Texas needs to be the leader. We are equipped to be the leader. We have miles of pipelines and we have millions of acres underground of caverns that could store. And right. so I, I think we would do well for Texas oil and gas if we can get this thing started. So whether nature-based solutions is good, so is carbon capture, so is the offshore work that's being done for these ports to make them better. I think Texas, because of its capacity and its knowledge base, there are going to be new jobs created. I'm convinced, Paige, new jobs created in this, what I would call sort of technological changing energy industry. We have hydrogen as a fuel. Right. And I think that the job market is bright, very bright for Texans. I think if you know you get into this, we've got to eliminate fossil fuels. That is a zero sum game and that's not going to work for the next 30 to 40 to 50 years. Global demand for energy is going to climb by about 50%. So we've got to get really smart about it, which I think we are, and we've got to get persuasive. And I think that the legislature is preparing to listen. We hope so. We're preparing a lot of documents. As I said, this life cycle analysis of all the energy sources, cradle to grave, I think is going to be very illustrative. Good. That's good to hear. Good to hear. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.